0: Thomas Gatner. This is big Gatner. From Hamilton, New Zealand. This is Doctor Who Podcast. You are most
1: welcome. Well, with no Doctor Who on our television screens in the very near future, it looks like it's time for us to uh, do a little Doctor Who Podcast geek out.
0: indeed with no doctor who on their screens it sounds like the children are having to find alternate forms of entertainment what wonderful young listeners we have to lead (laughs) us off
2: brilliant yes thank you thomas and rebecca for recording that fantastic intro have mercy on them. If this is their form of Doctor Who
1: entertainment, they've got they've got to resort to.
2: <laughs> Are you referring to recording themselves or listening to the Doctor Who podcast, even? Uh,
1: listening to the Doctor Who podcast, <laughs> of course.
2: <laughs> but how could anybody not be entertained by uh, me, you, and Michelle? Hey, it's true. Hey, hello. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Leeson was due to be with us, wasn't he? In fact, he was with us until about 10 minutes ago and his computer blew up. Um, so unfortunately, he wasn't able to put it back together again. So you've just got the three of us. So... Again, the curse of the DWP strikes again there is never a consistent set of hosts
1: we like to keep them guessing that's all (laughs) You keep the list keep the the listener yeah exactly
0: (laughs) speaking of keeping us guessing james just what do you think we should geek out about today
2: well the whole idea of a geek out is that we don't do any planning whatsoever so in true form i've got about four things um i want to speak (laughs) about Uh, but but the first of (laughs) the first of which and and again this is mainly due to the fact that i've been quite out of the loop where it comes to doctor who news I've been reading Doctor Who magazine, the one that dropped through my letterbox just a couple of days ago. Usually it's old news. I don't normally find out brand new stuff from Doctor Who magazine. But uh, because I've been so busy, there's loads of stuff in the Stephen Moffat interview that I I just didn't know. So the last couple of days of my commutes, I've been reading this and I've been finding out things that I think you two have known for a long time. But season season eight and season nine uh not necessarily confirmed but they're referred to in absolute terms by Moffat in this interview and that was that was really good that's the first thing I've seen anywhere that actually talks about seasons this year and in 2015
0: yeah that's very encouraging
2: yeah yeah I mean I don't think there was ever Was, was there a question
3: were we
1: worried that there wasn't going to be a season after yes, season 8?
2: Absolutely. And I, and I, <laughs> I I Oh, Stephen, there will never ever be a time when I take Doctor Who for granted. It just will never ever happen again. No matter how good fans think it is, there is never an absolute guarantee that it's just going to be there next year. Um I, I'm glad that brand new fans can almost expect it to be omnipresent forever. But I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit too old and jaded now to, um, <laughs> to, to to really take it for granted. Okay, fair enough, fair enough.
1: But we know that season eight is coming because they started shooting. I think it's almost two almost two weeks ago now, something mm. like that. That they actually that they uh, actually did start shooting uh, over there in Wales. Uh, the first shoot took place uh, hilariously. Uh, I probably shouldn't say hilariously, but I just think it's funny that the place was called Splot. I think that's a funny word. I
2: think it's Splow or something. <laughs> it, it featured in Torchwood as well. And it was, oh, I can't remember what episode or how long ago it was, but there was a joke about whether it was called Splot or Splow or something like that. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But no, it, it's been great to see some of these some of these photographs. And listeners, if you are of a spoilery disposition, then you may want to skip forward for the next five minutes or so, because we're going to be talking about some of the publicity photographs that have been released from what we think is episode one of season eight.
0: Well, for all our predictions uh, last week and contemplating about his costume and what it would be like, boy, the glimpses that we've got of the costume as of now are really intriguing, aren't they, Stephen? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, it's a Victorian night shirt. It seems that they they wanted to get him out of uh, Matt Smith's costume as quickly as possible. But uh, I think that this should just be his costume for the for the whole season. I think he should run around in a Victorian night shirt, and that'll be it.
2: So, is that what you're turning up to Gallifrey in then?
1: Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think I think the reason why I why why I say that I wanted to be the costume because it would be so easy to replicate.
2: It would be. Wouldn't you be worried about other fans looking up your night shirt? Uh, Not, no, you know. no. <laughs> well you'd have something to talk to Fraser Hines about certainly (laughs) but but no I I think it's interesting I mean I've not seen these particular photographs yet I've seen the ones that were released I think on day one which was basically Capaldi in Matt Smith's costume with Clara but both of them had clearly had haircuts
1: yes and they're recreating a John Pertwee Image. There was a there's a picture of the of the uh of the third doctor and uh, and Joe Grant doing the same exact pose.
2: Oh, right.
0: They looked extraordinarily similar. It was uncanny, and it's interesting that then this one is starting out in a nightshirt, much the way John Pertwee started out in a nightshirt in his initial episode. So who knows if uh, if those similarities will continue, but it's fun to watch and fun to speculate about.
1: What, what's been great about the, the shooting is that night when Capaldi was first spotted on set, apparently he was really... Uh, really amazing with the fans and walked up and, and took photos and signed autographs between every take um, and then when what when he was done for the evening he told them all that they could go home and get out of the cold because that's what he was going to do so just everyone just said he was really lovely and really
2: obviously really excited to be there so that's nice to hear no, brilliant I mean I, I I like reading these these set reports but I always do it kind of only with one eye, so I can put it away quickly in case it gets into spoiler territory. I mean, I'm not a huge spoiler-phobe at all, and it doesn't really spoil my enjoyment if i know what's coming up but having said that i won't voluntarily go and find out something just because i want to know something new but is is um is set reports and these photographs and these blogs that are posted by people who trail the cameras around Stephen? something you you read regularly
4: i do i i
1: I enjoy it because i'm the same way i don't think that spoilers don't harm my my viewing pleasure at all most most of the time because we get bits and pieces and we get clues and hints and and a lot of it comes down to how it all comes together and it's presented on the screen um, i didn't like that the, the the whole christmas episode was leaked early basically the whole the whole story there was well not the whole story there's bits of it but I, it, it still didn't detract from my from my enjoyment long answer to a short question yes i do read those things
0: <laughs> i've been really surprised this time because i don't seek those out and, and in a way i just assume not see them but This time around, more than ever before, they've been very easy to find. They've been right in my Twitter stream, and and I'm not really following anybody new. But it's remarkable to me how widely spread these particular images were for someone like me that doesn't seek out spoilery things. Well,
2: I, I think the fact that Capaldi is such a different kind of doctor... The mainstream press are picking up on it as well uh, and a lot of those initial photographs got reprinted in lots of the tabloids here in the UK and therefore they were on their online versions of the stories as well. So they were very easy to find whereas sometimes you have to rely, if, if you really want to see these photographs and set photographs, you have to rely on the people who do follow the, the, the filming crew around.
1: I think right now it's it's at the height of things as well because everybody wants to see what he's going to look like. What is that costume? What's he? What's he? It's a big deal, you know. Funny Um, funny thing
2: is, Stephen, it's not here. I mean, the costume is just a very very small part of what people are interested in. There's no huge anticipation. I think that seems to be far more prevalent in America.
1: I, I think it's it's a internet Tumblr twitter thing from what i've seen i mean there's lots of people talking about it especially tumblr tumblr is big into that stuff so I mean, you might be right i think it's far less mainstream media and you know a lot of that is just wanting to catch a glimpse of the new doctor in action yeah. what's he going to be like yeah, what's yeah. going to happen you know so yeah well it's
0: interesting yeah. as as affable as he is in real life i i just read that interview you are talking about with Stephen Moffat last night, myself, and there were words like dangerous and mad oh. uh, thrown about about what the characterization of the Doctor would be like this next time. What well, what do you think? Darker Doctor?
2: Uh, I, I think it's overt in the interview. Uh, he, he does say he's going to be darker. He says he's going to be crazier as well. And he talks about the Doctors, <laughs> you know, all, are all on a spectrum, <laughs> essentially, and, and the totally crazy mad ones he he described or or, or he he said were Tom Baker and Christopher Eccleston and he implied certainly that he was going back up to that end of the scale as opposed to the other end with Tennant and Smith who he described as good boyfriend doctors
1: yeah I I, I read that as well and well personally I just don't believe anything Moffat says (laughs) most of the time in these interviews I mean he hates doing them and 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 you know a lot of this stuff is just really off the cuff. And he said that similar things about Matt, what Matt was going to be like. And I, I don't know. I mean, the Doctor can only be so dark. I don't think that the Doctor as a character could get much darker than Christopher, Christopher Eccleston was. You know, I mean, Colin Baker had his moments, but and McCoy uh, but really...
2: certainly did, certainly. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I feel like with McCoy maybe it wasn't as overt as it obviously was with uh with Eccleston at least, you know. So yeah. I don't yeah. know. You know. I mean I think I think that the doctor always has his elements. But I think also, you know, at this point he you know now he knows that he saved Gallifrey and and there's that he doesn't have that to worry about anymore so it's taken a little bit of that of that brooding away that might have that might have been there so um so we'll see you know I think there might be a little bit I think there might be some uh, a little bit more hope behind those eyes than we've seen in a while but of course the first shot that we saw of Capaldi and day of the doctor with those those you know terrifying eyebrows so (laughs) yeah I wonder what the direction was just just look serious Peter (laughs) apparently he thought there was more of him that was going to be in the shots yes um (laughs) and then and they cut and they just cut in on that that really close-up uh of his eyes and he was even surprised that that's what it ended
2: up being (laughs) but i i tend to agree i don't think they can go much darker than they've already gone in certain episodes and you know as far as i'm concerned generally doctor who is is pretty much on a rotation sometimes you get extremely light-hearted episodes other times you get some extremely serious dark melancholic stories very introspective sometimes Mm -hmm, and those mm -hmm. those stories tend to be more about the doctor than himself as opposed to the circumstances that he happens to find himself in and you know we'll we'll wait we'll wait and see i don't think we're gonna see anything vastly different to what we've seen for the last 50
1: years
3: (laughs) frankly
2: no, but I, you know what I would like to see
1: is, is more back to the stories of him sort of falling into things and, and, and just traveling and it not necessarily. you know, I know we're always going to get some sort of story arc, but, but it seems like all of the stories lately have just been around the doctor and yeah. his, how special he is and how like the universe just can't exist without him, and I'd like to see it get back to more, yeah, you know, just bumbling around the universe a bit. I,
2: I would very much like to see. A return to just a, you know, just just a. a... I don't really want to say an old fashioned story because that makes me sound old and boring, but I I would like to see more adventure stories that the Doctor just finds himself caught up in, you know. Um, The other thing that I really want to see is that I I want to see a really good Cyberman story because we've just not seen one, and I I would love to see Capaldi's take on that. Of course, at a time when we have absolutely no idea what this incarnation is going to be like at all, then it, it's it's never going to be more intriguing. But I would love to see how we would how we would play off against some um, traditional Cybermen.
0: I would echo that for many of the other returning monsters. I think some of the old-time monsters haven't been served very well in the new series. Sontarans I would include in that. Daleks on occasion. Um They did the Zygons pretty well, so it'll be nice if they come back, if they can continue that trend. But I I do think a lot of the classic monsters still haven't seen really good stories and haven't come into their own in the new series.
1: I'm I'm really curious to see what Moffat means when he says that, you know, it's time to sort of flip, you know, flip the show around a bit again. You know, I wonder if he does feel sort of the same, you know, he's he wrote all of those episodes in, in the in the 50th anniversary year um that were all very very doctor centric, you know, like we said just about him and his quirks and stuff and I think maybe Moffat got something out of his system with all of that and and at least I'm hoping that when he says that he's going he's gonna flip it on its head, it's going
2: it is going to get back to that. Um, uh, you know. it, it's funny, you know you mentioned earlier that you didn't believe a word he said and he makes a lot of this stuff up on the cuff. Now I'm more inclined to believe the flipping it on its head is that kind of stuff. He's always said, it's possible. Uh, you know, he's he, he's always said that he's gonna change things and you know, arguably the eleventh hour is he, is not that unique, you know. I mean, people say Matt Smith just arrived, but f- for me, I I found it very easy to imagine David Tennant saying a lot of the dialogue given to Matt Smith. And I know everything changed. A lot of the comp- the companions changed. There was no common elements that carried over from the end of time into the eleventh hour. Even the TARDIS and the sonic screwdriver changed completely. So I think it was was more obvious and it was easy to say Oh yeah, everything just changed This time we're going to have some consistent elements We're going to have Clara, such as she is Span the change So I think all he's going to be doing Is he's he's telling the same story I.e. this is a new person But he's the same person But just from a slightly different angle And frankly isn't that what every first Doctor story is Pretty much in one form or another?
0: Well, you know what? I, what I think may be different this time, and and what I'd be looking forward to, when Moffitt in that interview talked about his plan for for the eleventh doctor, that right from the start Matt Smith's doctor would ex- be experiencing the consequences of events that we wouldn't see until a great big final showdown at the very end of his uh, of his run. <laughs> That helped me a little bit with my take on on the whole Moffat era, and and I can respect that. And I'm sure not all that was fully formed. But if we can believe him, when he when he went into it from the eleventh hour on, there was this sense that something out in the future would be impacting this doctor in this life throughout this life well we've seen that we've seen that come to its fruition and its culmination in time of the doctor i think and i hope that that we can kind of start afresh now and and flip and 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 try something different and that and as you say that he has maybe gotten that plot telling device out of his system it it was interesting and it was fascinating and had never been done before like that but i'm ready for a fresh start
1: i think he always wanted to tell a story in reverse because when uh, in that previous Doctor Who magazine, where he said that um, he had a he had a story in mind if David Tennant had stayed on about how the the first meeting with him would be right before he regenerates and he would come back basically and we would learn how he got to that regeneration throughout the, throughout the whole season. So I think he basically took that idea and um, expanded upon expanded it upon Matt Smith's entire era basically. So I think that this was a. This was a story, a device that he wanted, that he had been wanting to use, um, and he just, using it with Matt Smith, extended it over, uh, you know, over Matt Smith's entire tenure as a doctor. But I also think that the explaining things, um, I'm not sure if you've read uh, this interview that... uh, Oh, it, it's—I it, believe it is in the Doctor Who magazine where he talks about. Well, I'm not sure where it was. Anyway, uh, I'll have to. We'll have to. I'll have to cite the source later. Sorry, listeners, but um, it's something that I—that's uh, caused a lot of ire on the internet. But um, <laughs> um, it, it's another another time where I'm just being a Moffat apologist, I guess. But um, where he says that he. Doesn't explain everything on the screen necessarily because he expects the audience to be smart enough to put two and two together, uh, you know, and, and he feels that there are story elements that don't enhance the story, the story at that moment that he's trying to tell, you know, that there are certainly questions there, but he feels that they're easily answered um, by the audience and can fill in those gaps themselves because it doesn't, he yeah. doesn't. Feel the need to fill in those gaps on the screen and and i and i see his point i think i think you know if it's not if it's just filling in gaps it's you know it 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 could dilute the 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 story that you're looking at you know i I think Um,
2: the same article and i i think it may have been dwm said that there are times when he's got two and two wrong you know, <laughs> he mm. he said that he's filled in a gap where he shouldn't have done and he hasn't done when he should have. And, and I think that's that's only natural and it's quite honest as well. But I, I, I do think there are times when there are extremely complex storylines. If you write them, they're probably quite straightforward. And when you don't have traditional script editors on a show anymore, and they, they do still have three or four different script editors on the show, I, I think you need somebody else who's got the ability to say... This is not explained very clearly, and this this is overly explained. I mean, Moffat said in the in, in the interview that a lot of this stuff comes out during a read-through, and that's when he fixes it, but th- there's still been a heck of a lot during his era that has been muddled, I would say, or, or not particularly clear to someone who wants to sit there and appreciate every single layer of Mo- Moffat's plots.
0: I'm obviously not familiar with the the intricacies of the inside of how the scripts make it to production. But I do know, again, in one of these recent interviews, he talked about being surprised that he was able to get the script done in time for the read-through. And that makes it sound to me like it's not as collaborative a process as it could be. I think it would benefit, like you say, James, from more eyes on the script earlier on, perhaps more, more substantive feedback. It feels like some of these things are getting rush to be done and, and then you go through a read-through and you try and tweak things and, and boy it just seems to me that a more collaborative process would be better
1: yeah well if there's one thing we know about Moffitt, it's that he really gets these scripts in at the last minute always and he's even admitted it and and he says that's why he quit Twitter because it was making things even later um, he really uh, I'm not sure what it is I don't know what's distracting him but uh, but um, he really is bad about getting things in on time so um, well, I think Russell so, T.
2: Davis uh, was as well. In fact, I think yeah. he said that he frequently missed a deadline by two or three weeks. And, um, you know, he said sometimes that's how he writes the best because he's under a terrific amount of pressure to get something done quickly. I mean, I, I, I don't know whether or not a collaborative approach is, is a good idea for every script. I think Moffat wouldn't be able to put his own personal stamp on the show if he was to do that. But I, But I do think that... There ought to be, and I'm sure there are, it's probably just my ignorance. I do think there are some other people who know the show just as well and who are able to say without fear of major recriminations that you know I don't think that actually works. And, and perhaps there are, but it just felt like there was a lot of stuff that had it gone through, two or three top writers wouldn't have made it onto screen, particularly in Time of the Doctor. And one of those things, I think you could probably argue, was the character of Tasha Lem, who lots of people have come up with theories about. But we said on the last episode there was an awful lot of similarities between her and Riversong. One of our listeners feels the same, and he's taken the time to record his thoughts, and here they are.
4: Hello, the Doctor Who podcast. Fred from South Dakota, the US here. I'll keep this short, but I think you folks got so distracted in the time of the Doctor by the shiny resolutions to those burning questions that you missed the less explicitly spelled out puzzle. What's up with Tasha Lem? I believe she's River Song, and not just for what I think are obvious clues. I have subtler things that I'll put forth as kooky theory of the week. First, you have the more obvious stuff. She can enter the TARDIS. She can fly the TARDIS. She was the first to translore, not because she had decoded the message. Her actions were at first to prevent the battle and later to help the doctor try and win the battle, and the reference to her fighting the psychotic inside her for all those years. Who else in that very same episode was referred to as psychotic? Oh, and her last name is Lem, which could be an anagram of, what, Elm? But then there are two deeper clues. First, last we knew of River, she was saved in the computers of the library, And now we have Tasha as the mother superior of the Church of the Papal mainframe. Huh. That's a Moffat hiding in plain sight thing if ever I saw one. Secondly, speaking of hiding in plain sight, you wondered at the waste of the holographic clothing. Well, it could just have a later payoff like the Plastic People or the Tesselecta, but how about this? Why have a rule requiring holographically projected clothing in a church where the adherents are trained to see through holograms? So you can use holograms as a disguise against outsiders. Not only do I think Tasha is River, I think she's even still an Alex Kingston River under holographic disguise. There you go. Kooky Theory of the Week. And you are most welcome.
1: Uh, thanks so much for that, Fred. Uh, you know, I love it. A- <coughs> Theory of the week. Just as much as the next guy, and I and I think that I think that you bring up a lot of good points, and I really like the the hologram point. I, I'm once again going to uh, be the uh, the naysayer here and think and say that I really don't believe Tasha Lem is is, uh, is River Song. I do think that uh, maybe she was intended to be, and I think a lot of the things that are pointed out here um, are. Uh, Clearly indicate that She may that it may have been Intended to be a river song originally Um, But there are lines uh, And and additions into the episode That make me say that uh, That was no longer the intention once Once it once uh, Alex Kingston Wasn't wasn't available Uh, The the, the, the first thing that comes to mind Is um, that Tasha Lem Does not recognize uh, The 11th Doctor's current form Uh, She says to him oh you got a new body And he's he's like oh you know I've been rocking it for centuries or whatever um and then the fact that she does become a a dalek hybrid at the end and and seeing as river song can no longer uh can no longer regenerate i don't see how she can get out of that one
0: i think fred's points were were really astute and i can see how he builds his case really well i i don't know i don't know if she's gonna end up Having been River Song or not, in a way, I'd kind of like her to be because I was very uncomfortable with the intimacy that she seemed to share at the beginning with the doctor when we had never seen her before in the storyline. I also tend to agree with Stephen that because of what he says, I doubt she is. Uh, and, and I found her just, just very frustrating that all of a sudden in the very last episode when we're supposed to be celebrating everything that had gone on before with Matt Smith, we're introduced with this character that has this whole history with him apparently that we know nothing about. That that just doesn't work for me. I, yeah. I, I was uncomfortable just before we left. Amy and Rory that we didn't get to see uh, Rory's dad until three episodes before they left and in that case it was a little different because I love that character and would love to have continued on with him and yet here they spring him on us just before they're going to leave that storyline same thing with Tasha Lem major character just kind of appears right at the end of a storyline just felt awkward
1: yeah I really believe that that it was I, that you know and I don't maybe Moffat will admit at some point I really do believe that it was meant to be that it was meant to be River I mean we got we got River at the end of Name of the Doctor where she says you know that she gives spoilers as if you know there's a possibility that she'll come back and and um and why wouldn't moffat want river song in matt smith's last episode right i mean it just it 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 blows my mind that that she wasn't there because she's such been uh, such a big part of the 11th doctor story Mm -hmm. um so uh, i mean she was you know invented to kill his version of of the doctor so it's very strange that she wasn't there so i really believe that she that she was meant to be river but i think that If uh, originally in in the script and and that Alex Kingston probably wasn't available or something. But I think that if, you know, obviously if Moffat wants Tasha Lem to turn out to be Riversong in the future, I'm sure that he'll write something um, to explain it away. But um, at this point, I don't I don't think that I don't think that he will. Um, I think that uh, he probably won't admit to the fact that he wrote a whole story including someone who ended up not being available be- twice in the same year and I mean you know Alex Kingston for that and, and Christopher Eccleston for the 50th <laughs>
0: Well, I think we've talked New Doctor Who enough for a while. It's time again to look back into the classic series, which frankly is one of my favorite parts of these months when New Doctor Who isn't on. I love soaking in in the classic series. And and to be honest with you, there are parts of the classic series, just a few now, that are still gaps in my experience. One of those is season 23, The Trial of a Time Lord. Uh, I've seen... uh, most of the rest of the things Colin Baker did but I haven't seen much of that one yet and evidently I'm not the only Doctor Who fan who has yet to see that because Stephen Eldon, who recently caught up with the seventh Doctor in our Seventh Heaven series also had not seen Trial of the Time Lord and decided to take the plunge and watch that so we have the opportunity to hear Stephen's thoughts on that as he discusses it with James and Ian in Retrial of a Time Lord Once upon a time Lord the
2: Doctor took a rest Criticized for violent themes and poor sartorial dress. But now, 18 months later, the doctor's back at
0: last. Will the trial of a Time Lord be a success or just a total farce? Blah, blah, blah.
2: Yes, hello, and um, once again, I'm joined by Stephen Elsdon. Stephen, it seems like. Well, only yesterday you were sitting in exactly the same seat you are now (laughs) (laughs) talking about Sylvester McCoy. Uh, It's fantastic to have you back to talk about Colin Baker this time. So uh, what's your approach been to to watching *Trial of a Time Lord for the first time?
5: Well, I think The Trial of a Time Lord has a reputation which precedes it, so I couldn't put that to the back of my mind. I did have a slightly timey-wimey moment, because actually Colin Baker is the only Doctor I'd actually physically met. Um, <laughs> but when I met him, I'd never seen any of his adventures, so it was quite interesting to go any back. Of them? And, uh, no, I actually watched uh, The Two Doctors after I met Colin, but that's ah. still the only Sixth Doctor adventure I'd seen up until this uh Exercise, shall we say. Yeah, so I approach it with slight trepidation. Even even Tom Spilsbury, if I may name drop. I, I was with him on a train a week or two before I watched uh, Mysterious Planet and he said, oh dear, you're, you're not watching that uh, series, are you? And I thought, if Tom can't find anything positive to say about it, what hope is there? But uh, <laughs> I've been pleasantly surprised.
2: Good, and I think sometimes it's almost impossible not to allow fan consensus to impact your viewing experience somewhat. Yes, and uh, uh, I, I think it generally works well for me when something's got a bad reputation then I, I end up enjoying it far more than I expect. Yes, but so
5: perhaps have low expectations. Uh, yes,
2: indeed. Yeah. But anyway, well, we're gonna be talking about the mysterious planet. Jones Sims, Drathro, Dark, Light, Glitz. where do you wanna begin? <laughs> I don't
0: think I like Ravelox very much. Reminds me of a wet November back on Earth. Now that's part of the reason why we're here. Huh?
4: For Rabelox has the same mass, angle of tilt, and period of rotation as Earth. So? I thought that was quite interesting. Well, it's unusual to find two planets so similar. In fact, it's quite a phenomenon. Oh, a
5: well, pity it couldn't be a dry
4: one. Ravelox also has the distinction of having been destroyed by a solar fireball.
5: Well, let's begin with the um, with the trial because I think uh, that that's going to be the elephant in the room throughout this uh, throughout this series. And I have to say, the first episode of Mysterious Planet, I really found the trial engaging. I thought it was a good introduction to the to the story, to the uh, to, to the arc of this season. I found uh, Michael Jaston's performance in it particularly engaging, and I, and, I, and I really like that. As the uh, story progressed, I very rapidly found the court scenes uh, intrusive. Annoying, tedious, <laughs> uh, and quite frankly, they got in the way of what was a an average strength story. I think the story itself, the Mysterious Planet story, had a good start. There's lots of uh, good SF nods to uh, to Planet of the Apes, the yeah, discovery yeah. of Marble Arch. Uh, uh, tube station and the mystery of you know why is the Earth out of sync? Which uh, maybe maybe me think of the stolen Earth actually. You know? <laughs> yeah, I thought it had a good uh, it had a, had a good start, but to actually step out of it every five ten minutes to have another two minutes of Michael Jaston and uh, Colin Baker spouting ridiculous lines of dialogue at each other, it was it was in, uh, increasingly a struggle to get to the get to the end of it actually.
2: Mm, yeah I, I think it's quite clear there's an awful lot of story there that they could have included instead of those trial scenes and one of the things I was hoping with the DVD release was at least that you'd have an option to remove all yeah. of the trial scenes <laughs> and just watch the story. But, uh, but That would
5: have made the last uh, 30 parts rather interesting <laughs> wouldn't yes, it?
2: <laughs> but uh, but I, I agree I mean I think this story has actually got quite a lot going for it yeah. uh, at yeah. least in terms of look and feel. Colin Baker has got long curly hair Yeah. and the relationship with Perry had come on.
5: Yes, I thought come that was pick. I thought that was very strong, and uh, I think it had some very very strong characters in it. I mean, particularly um, Glitz. You know, Dibber, I'm the product of a broken home. Um, you have mentioned it on occasion, Mr. Glitz, which sort of unbalanced me, made me selfish to the point where I cannot stand competition.
3: Know the feeling only too well, Mr. Glitz.
5: Whereas yours is a simple case of sociopathy, Dibba. My malaise is much more complex. A deep-rooted maladjustment, my psychiatrist said, brought on by an infantile inability to come to terms with the more pertinent, concrete aspects of life.
2: Well, That sounds more like an insult than a diagnosis, Mr Glitz.
5: You're right there, my lad. Of course, I'd, if you remember, I'd seen Glitz in the Seventh Doctor stories without knowing where he'd come from. And the <laughs> Doctor's like, oh, hello, how are you? And it's like, well, wh- wh- who's he? But now I've, I understand his backstory. And uh, yeah, I thought, you know, Tony Selby gives a good performance there. I thought mm. there's lots of good performances. There's some good, strong ideas in it. Um, the production values there are a little bit uh, a little bit poor. I mean, the robots in particular. I mean, there's the, um, the L7 robot that looks like a, a cast-off prototype Dalek. Uh, and then we've got uh, you know the the, the immortal Drassero, Uh and there's that oh, that moment at the end where he's he's about to head off and he's got a bag as if he's got, packed his luggage for a long uh, for, <laughs> for, a, for a long flight, you know, just a completely comical uh, comical robot. And uh, given that he was the, the you know the main bad guy in the in the show, I thought uh, you know for this adventure, I thought I thought it let it lent down a little bit. Mm. Um, but I thought the idea about people who've been driven underground and then reclaiming their their, their birthright was a, was a strong one.
2: Perhaps the very last time we saw traditional Robert Holmes double act with Glitz and Dibber, mm. and yeah, there, there was a comedic element that ran throughout this. I'm not sure whether it really worked, and I'm not sure whether it warranted Tony Selby's return a little bit later. But uh, well,
5: he's channeling Han Solo in this, isn't he? But I, I, didn't, I didn't. Dibber's badly. no tobacco no you know. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on to the next story in the trial season. And I'm going to hand over to Ian
5: for Mind Warp.
1: Doctor, the prosecuting counsel's title is the Valyard, not the brickyard, backyard, knacker's yard, or any other kind of yard. Again, do I make myself clear?
5: Piercingly and irrefutably so, madam. This was, I thought, an improvement on uh, on Mysterious Planet. Um, I had a, a slight difficulty with this because having not seen Vengeance on Varos, which I understand is Sill's first uh, appearance, mm-hmm. I didn't know who Sill was, so there was a bit of a, a jarring moment of trying to adjust to, OK, who's this returning character that I've not seen before? And it did make me think that actually there's a lot of um, returns and presages in this season that, that if you're not a regular viewer, you're going to start to find it a little bit difficult to uh, to penetrate. I think it's it's another another strong science fiction story, but of course, if I'm going to think back on Mindwalk forevermore, I'm going to remember Brian Blessed, (laughs) (laughs) and he has a presence over this adventure that just pummels everything else into the ground.
0: Their footsteps are guided towards me. That is their destiny
4: and
5: mine. Destiny? Isn't that just a fancy name for
0: blind chance?
4: Blind chance?
3: Destiny? If that were true, our lives, my majesty would be... Meaningless! Well, it's
5: merely a point of view. A thought
3: was an empty one, my lady. We
5: all live for a purpose. And for me, that is to die a hero. I do wish you wouldn't keep going on like that. I don't know what they were thinking when they cast him. I don't know what the director was thinking. Whether he said, you know, play it like you played it in Flash Gordon, or whether that's just Brian bless 's approach to any piece of science fiction. But he just rode roughshod over everything. And, I mean, towards the end of this adventure, you've got other characters talking about... I think the Doctor himself sort of putting his hands over his ears or other characters doing that, you know, all oh, this this guy's loud voice. And I'm thinking, have they been improvising that because they've been spending so much time acting alongside Brian? I talked on, the, on Mysterious Planet about the uh, the intrusion of the of the court scenes. And, uh, as you said at the, the head of this, you know, exit Perry. This should have been Perry's great you know, exit from the series. It should have been up there with Adric. As the you know the crushing uh, death of a companion, and it's completely fudged because you know just before she's about to die, we cut away to the court again, you know, and and then when we get back, we're in a some weird sort of slow motion end of Blake Seven uh, montage with uh, <laughs> you know Brian Blessed rushing in, firing his gun. You don't actually see Perry die, and then we're just told oh, she's dead.
3: Difficult execution aside, it was a pretty horrible and shocking end for Perry, and I, I personally can't imagine. What my kids would think if something that was done with Clara, you know, she's had brain surgery and now there's a lizard brain inside her and she's gone forever. It's a pretty v- uh, vicious way of taking her out of the series.
5: Well, well, it is, but of course we did have that actually with Clara when we discovered she was the uh, the intelligence of the Dalek in Asylum of the Daleks. I think the idea behind her death was amazing. The, um, the, the, the scientist Crozier, I mean, initially I thought, oh, this is a sort of Dr Moreau type character, but there's a, there's a great moment, isn't there, where... Um, Kiv goes into cardiac arrest and Crozier finishes his cup of coffee before he attends to the uh, the medical emergency. <laughs> just think, what? I mean, that could have been a dramatic moment, but I think the, 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 you know, the acting uh, just, just just wiped that away. As I say, I think there were some great ideas here, I think I would have toned down Brian Bless's performance or actually recast. I mean, the first episode he doesn't get anything to do except lie in a bed, but then from the beginning, the part two is awake, and my God, you know you know it. You know, with some changes, there could have been a, a, a very strong story with a great exit for, for a much loved companion, um, but I think it was fudged, as I say, by these continual cuts away to, to what's increasingly a, a mundane and dull courtroom drama. I am not
4: responsible for that!
5: One of the things I've often said about Conan Baker was that his character started off to
3: uh, abrasive and aggressive and he tried to turn it down over time and you see that through this series. Do you think it was a misstep then in this story to have him suddenly have this brain damage and turn even more aggressive and abrasive than he has been before?
5: it was certainly confusing i mean I, I must admit i didn't even get that he was brain damaged i thought he knew what he was doing the whole the whole, the whole way through but uh, you know you, but you don't know is he playing a game or not i mean there's a little bit of, of, of viewer interest in that but it does mean that you can't actually get a handle on his character and i think given that he i think he struggled throughout the his time as a doctor to embed himself in the in, in the fans hearts an episode and adventure like this is not going to help that because they can't get a, a, a clear take on the character well we've
3: seen the end of perry and And next time we will come back and look at Terror of the Vervoids with Entermel. Thank you very much, Stephen, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much
2: indeed, Stephen. Uh, It's always good to hear what you think of these episodes. Um, There's very few people I know now who haven't seen all of Classic Who, so um, it's great to get a fresh perspective on something that, to me, is extremely old now. Uh, But having said that, I'm I'm not too sure whether or not to comment on some things that... um, the Stephen said now, or whether or not to talk about that jingle that that Leeson had recorded for us. I mean, basically, he's the DWP's answer to George Formby, isn't he? Who? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: George Formby. Right, now, he's probably, yes, it's, I've probably got the wrong audience here. I think he's... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, okay, well, wrong audience there, but never mind. At least some will appreciate it, I'm sure. But uh, but tune in next week for part two of trial of A Time Lord, where Stephen talks about Terror the Vervoids and the ultimate foe.
0: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing what Stephen Elston says next week as he continues through the series.
1: So... We're getting double the Michelle on this episode, and double the the lease and jingles. I mean, you know, this is this is just this is uh this is monumental here. But um, uh, Michelle, uh, you and Ian reviewed some some uh, Eighth Doctor uh, audio, Sword of Orion. Sword, can I pronounce it? Sword of Orion. That's a tongue
2: twister. Sword of Orion. Sword of Orion. Sword of Orion. Sword of Orion. Very easy.
1: I can't do it. I, well, maybe it's a British thing.
5: Uh, <laughs> Big Finish with
0: Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish,
5: sorting out the wheat from the chuff and nonsense. Saving you money on the ones that are not so good.
3: This week we're continuing our look at Paul McGann's early work with Big Finish with the second of his stories, The Sword of Orion which is also a big finish first in that it's the first appearance of the Cybermen. The Doctor and Charlie arrive in a backwater star system far in the future at a time of war and soon find themselves in danger.
0: Are you sure we've come to the right place?
3: Well, there's no better place than the Garazone Bazaar for finding ancient remedies and mystical tongues.
0: It's a den of iniquity, that's what it is.
3: I thought you'd be interested in glimpsing the future of human society in all its grim and grimy glory.
1: Human? Most of the creatures here aren't what I'd call human.
3: Terrible thing, this interbreeding.
0: Oh,
5: don't be disgusting!
3: Come on, Charlie. This looks hopeful.
0: What? Oh. Well, Sword of Orion is one of the Big Finish stories that a lot of fans list as one of their all-time favorites, and I, I think that's justified. This is a really good story, a very solid, enjoyable story, and a nice introduction to the Cybermen in the Big Finish universe. Um, it, In some ways, it's a classic base-under-siege story. They, they spend some time in the, in the spaceship that the Cybermen are in, and then they end up back on their own smaller salvage-type spaceship, having to to fend off the Cybermen who are getting in. So, you know, it goes to that tried-and-true storyline, but does it very effectively. And and yet within that, there's also a mystery that goes on. Um, One of the things I like about this is that the different characters on that salvage ship uh, are each unique and they each have personalities and they're, they're each interesting. I think they're well drawn. But the captain who's been newly appointed to the ship is clearly different from the rest. And so also, you know, while they're fending off the Cybermen, they're having to figure out what is it that's so special about this captain. And And it, it all works really well.
3: I would agree. I thought this was a really, really strong story. In fact, it brought me back right to when we first started doing our reviews because we reviewed the Cyberman miniseries and that is set in the same universe as this story and it actually follows on from it. And I found this had a very, very similar creepy atmosphere with a feeling of dread and a sort of a certain gritty realism about it.
0: Did you recognize the same music cues from the Cybermen series? I noticed that.
3: Yes, the, the the atmosphere is very, I mean, obviously it's going to be very reminiscent because they base Cybermen upon, upon this. And I would recommend anyone who's going to listen to the Cybermen series to listen to this one first. And in fact, this was so, so strong and so enjoyable, it makes me want to go back and listen to those again. Um, I thought this was a really, really good story, a good story for Paul McGann, uh, and a good story for the Cybermen.
0: And a good story for the Cybermat.
3: And yes, we get the Cybermat back as well. Um, what I really enjoyed about the Cybermen in this story is that they're implacable, they're smart, they're very capable, they form a really, really serious threat, and, and they keep adapting their plans and overcoming the, the obstacles in the way that you expect uh, you know, someone with their fearsome reputation would. But... They're not magically invincible, they're not the nightmare and silver Cybermen who just flick a switch and, you know, like the Borg adapt to whatever's coming at them. They still have weaknesses, they still can be beaten, and I found that to be a, one of the, the best realizations of the Cybermen that I think I've ever seen in Doctor Who, even, never mind on audio.
0: Yeah, these these Cybermen are relentless, and they're scary because they're relentless, not because they're overwhelming in force or numbers, uh, or speed, or anything like that. They're just everything you do to try and keep them out. They're going to work around and continue to, to to come after you. But very, very effective. This was written and directed by by Nicholas Briggs. So I, you know another example, I think, of of what an effective writer he can be for Doctor Who. And and as is typical with good Nick Briggs stories, it's got some some kind of deeper stuff going on. There's a some examination of. Uh, oh, stereotypes and, 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 you know, why do we go to war and what does it mean to be human and are the humans always in the right or are they not? And, you know, some comparisons of, you know, who's, who's more human, the human, the android or the cybermen? Um, interesting stuff that was, that was explored in here and good all around.
3: Yes and the other part that I really really loved with the sort of benefit of hindsight of the new series is that uh, there is a point in the story where humans are being put through the cyber conversion process and one of the humans gets extremely upset and very emotionally overwrought.
4: sorry.
3: This human is experiencing emotional trauma. It is unsuitable for conversion. Terminate it. Your None of this, you know, oh, a baby cries and they're all going to explode and die stuff. This is how Cybermen should be.
0: Yeah, that person was not quality material for for being made into a Cyberman. They got rejected and it was all over very quickly. But yeah, now this is the Cybermen as the Cybermen should be done.
3: A barnstormer of a story, very, very enjoyable, highly, highly recommended uh, to anyone to listen to. And particularly as you're looking for your introduction to Paul McGann.
0: Not only a good introduction to Paul McGann's stuff, but a good introduction to Big Finish in general if you've never tried them. And... and Again, if you're trying Big Finish for the first time, if you're exploring Paul McGann audios for the first time, we'd love to hear what your response is to Sword of Orion and the others that we're reviewing as a part of this series. Happy listening.
2: Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Michelle. Yes, yeah, Sword of Orion, one of my favourite stories that Paul McGann has ever recorded for Big Finish, I think, and definitely my favourite of that first season, without a doubt. And Mr. Moffat, BBC, Mr. Gaiman in particular, if, if you'd like to know how to write a Cybermen story, take a listen to Sword of Orion. Mr. Briggs can teach you a thing or two.
1: Wow. Those are some... Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's, those are some strong words coming from you there, James. Anyway, um, next week, we're going to be talking about some third Doctor. We haven't spoken about John Pertwee's Doctor for a very, very long time. And again, because... We've talked about it briefly in this episode already. And partly because I haven't seen the story for a very long time, we're going to be talking about Spearhead from Space. So if you have any thoughts about that particular story, then send them in to us, feedback at the Podcast.com. And we're going to be asking on Twitter, which other third Doctor story we should be talking about. And we'll do that probably before you've heard this episode. So Stephen and Michelle, just picture this. We've already asked our listeners... What's your favourite third Doctor story? Which ones do you want to hear the three of us talk about? What have they said?
0: <laughs> they, uh, The Green Death.
2: Oh, okay. Stephen? Clos of Access. Right. Okay, you'll have to tune in. That's third Doctor. right? <laughs> yeah, it's the third <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> Oh, Stephen, you're going to need to need to definitely go back to the third Doctor school on this, I think. <laughs> okay, so tune in in seven days' time to find out whether or not these predictions, see, I'm getting really into predictions now after last week, <laughs> come true or not. Stephen, Michelle, it's been wonderful speaking to you again. Listeners, thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week. Bye for now, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.
3: You've been listening to the Doctor Who podcast with James, Stephen, Michelle, Stephen. I no, already said Stephen. Um, you've been listening to the Doctor Who podcast with James, Michelle, Stephen, and Stephen. No, there's still two Stevens. I'm confused. You've been listening to the Doctor Who podcast with Stephen, James, Stephen. No, I can't figure it out. Um, you've been listening to the Doctor Who podcast with a great, great bunch of people. You can find more episodes of the show at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. Or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or drop by the Doctor Your podcast forums and say Stephen sent you. Whichever one of the two it is. Thanks for listening. Take care.